Good morning. It's good to see each of you today. I want to encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of James, the book of James in the New Testament. We are beginning a new series today as we will be preaching through James. This will take us through the end of November, just in time for Christmas, right? I just said Christmas. Yes. And so James is where we will begin today. This is great if you're a first time guest with us today. I mean, we're starting James, so that means you have to stick with us for the next 12 weeks, right? Uh, as we you wouldn't want to miss uh, the end. Uh, and so we're glad you're here with us. If you're a guest today, we certainly are thankful for you. And it's good to have you, and it's good to see each of you this day. Um, James, let's begin here. In James chapter 1, I want to ask you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. We want to read verses 1 through 11. That'll be our focus today, our text for today. James 1, verses 1 through 11. This is the Word of the Lord. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the winds. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exultation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know that we come to you today in dependence upon you. We ask for your help as we begin this exposition of James. Father, we know that this book has been inspired by your spirit and has been written for the good and transformation of your people. So, Lord, would you give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see that we need? And Holy Spirit, would you come and tend to our hearts today and, and apply the truth of your word to each of us in a way that would bring you glory? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's that time of year when it's hurricane season. For those of us who live here on the East Coast, that means there's always this heightened awareness of what's going on in the Atlantic Ocean, right? It's this time of year when, when we are watching that tropical system that's brewing out there somewhere. Now, if you're from the West Coast, you don't have this problem as much. You have earthquakes. If you're from the Midwest, you may not have either of those, you have tornadoes. So I think I would rather take my chances on the East Coast because at least we're given weeks of advance before these monstrous storms come our way. 
In fact, when we begin to hear those reports, Jim Cantori and the gang on the Weather Channel become our best buds, don't they? We, we, we begin checking in with them maybe every other day and then every day and then every minute of every day. Some of you ladies are thinking, my husband thinks this guy's the best thing every day. No, doesn't matter if there's a hurricane or not. Well, when we think about the book of James, I want to contrast that or compare that, I guess, if you will, to, to what we are given when it comes to the warnings of storms. Because what people do, weather forecasters and those, those folks on the Weather Channel and other places, when there's a storm brewing, they help us prepare, don't they? They help us to be aware of what's going on so that we will take proper measures and so that we will do the proper preparation in anticipation of those storms. Well, the book of James can be seen somewhat like that, especially here in these first 11 verses, because what James is doing is he's helping the believer prepare for trials. It's as if James is saying, it's always hurricane season. There's either one out there brewing somewhere, or you're hunkered down in the midst of one, or you're evaluating the damage that's been done. James is here to serve us in how we need to brace for and prepare for such storms, or we would say trials. Now, James is a book that has not always been well-received by the church. In fact, Martin Luther referred to it as a right strawy epistle and didn't think too fondly of it since it did not highlight salvation by grace. But as we will see, with no disrespect to our brother Luther, who I greatly respect, James is a solid word for us. It is a solid word for us because of its practical instruction in the Christian faith. James was likely the first New Testament book written somewhere in the mid-40s A.D. It was written by Jesus' half-brother James, who had now become a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. And he pens this letter early on, and as he does so, he's writing to encourage and help the saints prepare for difficulties in life. He's writing to scattered believers, especially in light of persecution and challenging circumstances that they had been facing. It's likely that James is writing to Jewish Christians that have been scattered, maybe targeting uh, what we would call modern-day Syria, but, but we're not exactly sure the, the, the reach of this letter. Obviously, it's reached us today, but initially, we're not sure exactly how far the reach was. We just know there had been Christians scattered. The 12 tribes were told in the dispersion. This is just a way to refer to, to believers now, and as the, especially the Jewish Christians, as they are now being scattered and have been pressed persecuted in different ways. So James is writing, likely this first New Testament letter, historically speaking, to encourage, to exhort, to help the believers prepare and to weather the difficulties they will face. Friends, all of us will certainly know the impact of a trial. We sung a song this morning, in fact, I've titled uh, the message today, When Trials Come, Not If. It's not an if they come, it's when they come. So what do we do? 
What is, what is James telling us, whether or not the, the storm is brewing or whether in the, we're in the midst of it, hunkered down, or whether we're surveying the damage and seeing what we need to do to put the pieces back together? What is James telling us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and how we ought to respond to the trials life, that, the, the trials that are marked by life? I want to walk us through this passage today in, in three, three points, three observations that we need to consider regarding the trials in life and how we ought to respond to them. Point number one, trials invite joy. Trials invite joy. Look at verses one through four. James introduces himself. He introduces those who he's initially writing to. And then he says in verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James begins his letter with one of the strangest sentences in the Bible. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think this is not a normal response, right? This exhortation really initially takes us by surprise when we get to the core of, of what James is saying. That will change, but it, it, it sounds odd, doesn't it? Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. I mean, we we kind of want to dialogue with James, don't we? Like, do you really know what you're asking me to do? Do you really, James, understand how odd that sounds? And that is not, that's not normal. Well, we want to press into this a bit this morning and, and try to wrap our brains around this statement. In order to do that, we need to consider several things. Number one, who is this command, this exhortation for? Who's he, who's he telling, count it all joy, my brothers, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds? James, back in verse 1, identifies the original recipients of his letter, Jewish believers that have been scattered. Verse 2, he says, my brothers, my brothers and sisters. James is saying, he is saying to Christians, count it all joy, my brothers, my fellow believers. Because this is a command and an exhortation that only the believer can receive. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, first of all, let me say we're thrilled that you're here. And we hope that you come back. We hope that we can make, build a relationship together. We, we hope that we can have conversations together. We look forward to, to getting to know you more. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you will not be able to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. It will be impossible for you. That is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is your, ought to be your, your focus and your hope right now. Because... God so loved us all that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world that if you would believe in him, that if you would embrace him and trust in him and, and place your hope in him and not anything else, that your sins would be forgiven and that you would have everlasting life. You would be adopted into the family of God. That is the hope that is for you. So friend, today, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, we would urge you and we would ask you, please look to Jesus and trust in him. But only Christ can give you the ability to do verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. This is for the believer. 
Only believers can do this. Number two, what is it saying? He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. The word all here, maybe, maybe it depends on how you think about English, right? Well, really you need to think beyond that because you need to understand what's, what's going on here. If we're not careful, we'll think that James is saying we need to count everything as joy. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that we need to count it all joy. All is an adjective describing joy. So we could also say this, we should count it pure joy. We should count it entirely joy. When we face trials of various kinds, James is describing the type of joy one should have in light of the various trials they face. Joy is often confused with happiness or some kind of jolly feeling. But friends, joy has so much more to do with the state of being rather than an emotion. Craig Blomberg writes this in his commentary. He says, joy may be defined as a settled contentment. I love that phrase. A settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, unadulterated, thankful trust in God. He says a lot there, just, just remember settled confidence. It's a settled confidence, a settled contentment. So James is instructing his readers here, not in how they should feel, but in how they should think. That is what verse two is saying. Count it all joy. He's not saying feel good when you face trial. He's not what he's saying. He doesn't say enjoy the trials. He says count it all joy, count it pure joy, meaning have a settled contentment and confidence in God. It's a call to embrace a particular kind of attitude and response. Again, counting our trials as joy is not some kind of mushy-gushy, jolly kind of feeling, no matter how bad you're hurting, but a settled confidence in the providence of God. Most of the time, well, I would say most, but many times, when you're doing verse 2, you're not going to feel very jolly. Trials hurt. We don't need to try to cover those kinds of hurts up. We, we shouldn't pretend that a trial isn't hurting when it's hurting. James doesn't instruct us to do that. He's saying when you face them, count it joy. Have this settled contentment and confidence in God. Trials can be counted as pure joy, not because they are enjoyable, but because we know there is design and purpose in them, which leads me to the third observation under this point. Why is it stated? Who's it for? What's it say? And why is it here? Why would James say this? Verses three and four answer that. For you know, or we could say knowing, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? knowing or for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's, there's a reason here. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He says, count it all joy. And why should we do that? Well, he says, knowing. Knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith, this word testing is not a common word used in the Bible. 
In fact, it's only used one or two times in the Bible. Right here, it's used again in 1 Peter 1, verse 7. It's also used twice in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It's used in Psalm 11, verse 7, and Proverbs 27, verse 21. This word, in especially the Old Testament passages, speaks to the process of silver and gold being refined by fire, being these metals being purified, having the, the impurities brought out through the fire, and, and, and a, a pure, more beautiful metal presented. See, trier, trials are the fire through which our faith is refined and strengthened. A tested faith leads to further steadfastness. And steadfastness, James says, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We sang this morning this, this new song from the Gettys, this great new hymn. I love the modern hymns that are coming out, especially from them. This is what it says in verse 1. They read James. They were preaching James to us through this song all the way through. When trials come, no longer fear, for in the pain our God draws near to fire a faith worth more than gold. And there... His faithfulness is told. This is exactly what's going on. The hymn writers couldn't have said it any better. I, I couldn't have said it any better than they stated it in their song. This is what God's doing. He's drawing near to us in the midst of a trial to fire our faith, to, to refine our faith, to make us more like Christ. It's better to get this, by the way, before you go into the trial than try to understand it in the midst of the trial. One truth from the Bible that you can be certain that you will not hear from the prosperity gospel preachers is this. Suffering is often ordained by God in our lives to make us more holy. Suffering is often ordained by God, designed by God, and brought by God into our lives to make us more holy. The prosperity gospel people will say, if you're suffering, you must not be a Christian. If you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong. Whereas the problem is, is they don't preach the Bible. They don't understand exactly what the Bible teaches. And so what we're seeing here is that, that God is often in the midst of those trials, bringing about a purpose sometimes we, we will never know. Sometimes you, you just will never know what in the world, why you had to do that, why you had to go through that. If you spend the rest of your life trying to figure it out, you may drive yourself crazy and others. Sometimes it's clear. There, there are all kinds of reasons as to why the, the Lord will, will send us through a trial. The, the Bible highlights several of them. One of the great things about the way we're doing it this fall is our home groups are going to be studying the same passage we're preaching on on Sundays. So we're going to be following up this week. So some of you home groups may want to tease these out a little bit more this week. Here's some, some reasons that, that trials often come into our lives. And you can just jot these down. One, to test the strength of our faith. You can reference some of these passages. Deuteronomy 13, verses 3 and 4. Sometimes trials come into our lives to humble us. Remember, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, to, to keep him humble. Sometimes trials are there in our lives. Hebrews 11, 24 through 26, to wean us from worldliness. Three, four, 
to call us to eternal and heavenly hope. Sometimes trials are there to remind us that, friends, this world is not it. It's to reshape our focus and redirect our attention to Jesus and what he's doing on an eternal scale, not just a temporary one. It's to reveal what we really love. Sometimes trials are there to press in on our hearts to show that we're really idolatrous, that we're worshiping other things, that we're more devoted to other things than we are to Christ. Luke 14, verse 26, to, to teach us to value the blessings of God. Psalm 63, verse 3 and 7, through 3, 3 through 7. Another is to strengthen us for greater usefulness in the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Another one, 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 6, to prepare us so that we can help others. And sometimes, friends, trials are just there because of the foolishness of our own sin. Friends, whatever, listen, whatever trial you have walked through or you're presently walking through or will walk through, none of them are meaningless. There is no trial that you will encounter in your life for whatever reason it's there that is meaningless. Every trial has divine fingerprints on it to do you some kind of good. So what James says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect. Don't want to get tripped up over the word perfect. Just think mature and complete whole. And, and he goes further to explain the completeness lacking in nothing. He, he's not saying that trials will make us perfect in that we will never sin again. He's not saying that we'll become sinless eventually this side of heaven through trials, but what he's emphasizing here is that trials will, will make us complete, will mature us, will, will, will bring us maturity in our lives. So when a trial comes, we are called as Christians to count it all joy, to have a settled contentment in God, not because it's enjoyable, but because the sovereign creator of the universe has seen fit to take the time to invest in you. Ha, have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever thought about a trial that way? Have you ever engaged in a trial or, or maybe you're, you're preparing for the storm, you see it coming, or you're right now in the midst of it and you think to yourself, how blessed I am that God has seen fit to bring this into my life at this time to refine me. How many of you think that way? Yeah, not too often do we think that way. I mean, how many times do you just get in the midst of it? I mean, all kinds of things are breaking loose and you're just like, you're, you're just wilting and you're melting and you're thinking, thank you, Lord. Thank you for sanctifying me through this. We, we typically don't go there. What I'm hoping this, this passage will do is will help us go there. More often than not, we, we typically don't think that way. But listen, what matters most to God, what matters most to God is, is not your comfort. We, we like to be comfortable, but that's not, although he does care about your comfort. We shouldn't say that God doesn't care about your comfort. He does care about your comfort. That's not what matters most to him. Your bank account is not most important to God, although he cares about your resources and he will give you everything that you need. 
There are other things, your health. God cares greatly about your health, but your white blood count, your white blood cell count is not the most important thing to God, although that matters to God. What God cares most about is whether or not we look more like Jesus. And he will use various things. Don't you like James? Holy Spirit inspired James. He doesn't just narrow it down to a few things. He just leaves it wide open. Various trials. You insert the trial and God is working it in a way to mature you. Trials ought to invite joy. A settled contentment. In God, not a feeling, not an emotion, but a right thinking about a good and faithful God. You know, trials are designed to make us stronger, but we have to be honest, sometimes we fail the test, don't we? He says, for you know that the testing of your faith, if you have a test, you can pass or fail, right? Sometimes we, we fail the test and we grow bitter at God. We grow angry at God. We grow disappointed and discouraged and, and we, we get bitter. And so, so God's using this for our good. That's his intent. But sometimes, sometimes we, we, we have to stay in the fire a little longer because of our own response to God. Friends, trials ought to invite us to count it all joy, to have this settled contentment in God. Number two, trials demand wisdom. Trials demand wisdom. If you look at verses five through eight, when you, when you read James, sometimes James seems like he's just, he's just putting in all of these random principles for Christianity. But here I do think that these things are linked. In verse 5, he says, if any of you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Oftentimes, trials will make things cloudy, right? We're going along and all of a sudden we're in the middle of a trial and, and what happens is is it's, it's kind of like driving in a fog. We just can't see like we once could see. And, 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 and we're so restricted in our line of sight that we're struggling to, to just make it another, another inch down the road. Trials oftentimes make things foggy or cloudy. And when we're going through difficulty, it's the, in those times that oftentimes we're not thinking clearly. Even in good times, we don't think so clearly sometimes, do we? Wisdom is a significant theme throughout the book of James. In fact, James is often referred to as part of the wisdom literature of scriptures, one of books of the Bible in that genre, wisdom literature, that we find in the New Testament. But when we think about biblical wisdom, we're not talking about knowledge or intellect. And most of the time when we think about wisdom, we're thinking brains, right? Well, it has to do with brains, but it's brains to the heart to, to how we live. Brains is important, but the heart response to what we think in our minds and in our lives is, is just as important. So wisdom is the application of knowledge. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So wisdom is not some subjective internal thing. It's very practical. It's very practical in how we respond. It's how we live out our lives. So even as we're growing in maturity, as Christians, we still need wisdom. 
There's, there's not a day in your life, Christians, where you will, where you will get to the point and say, I think I've got all the wisdom I need. Praise be to God. I've got all the wisdom I can handle. That's not going to happen. If that happens, invite someone here today to kind of smack you a little bit because that's not going to happen. And if you think that, then you're deceived. We all need wisdom. We continue to grow in wisdom. And and James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God and God will give it to you because God is generous. How often, think about this for you, how often in the middle of a trial are you quick to pray, Lord, I need wisdom? How often is that your default posture to God in the middle of a trial? Typically, it's okay. Divider went down. No humans. All is well. This is not a trial. (laughs) Maybe for the preacher. But it's for my own steadfastness and maturity. (laughs) Just think about that. How often when we're in the middle of the trial do we think, Lord, help me. I need wisdom. What we're typically thinking is, Lord, help me get out of this. That's what we're thinking. Lord, get this over with as soon as possible. That's typically our prayer response, isn't it? Maybe we should be reshaping our prayers a bit to say, and it's okay to say, Lord, I I don't care for this trial. I don't care for this pain. It's not something that I would have pursued on my own, but you're, great, you're much greater than I am. You, you have past, present, and future all figured out. You're sovereignly orchestrating all things for your glory and my good. It's not what I've chosen. So Lord, however long you have me in this trial, help me to trust you and give me wisdom. Several things to keep in mind when we're seeking wisdom. Number one, know who it is you're asking. James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, Let him ask Dr. Phil. No, that's not what he says. He says, let him ask God. Let him ask God. Friends, all wisdom has its source in God. You go to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22 and following, and there you see wisdom in this poetic way personified, and you see it there. You can go there and read it on your own maybe this afternoon. But notice what James has to say about God as we seek him for wisdom. He is the one and the primary one that we ought to pursue for wisdom. Listen, God, when you go to him for wisdom in the midst of a trial, when you're praying, God is not being informed about your trial. He's the one that designed it. He knows all about it. So when you're praying in the midst of the trial, that that prayer is is designed as a means to connect you to the sufficiency and adequacy of God to meet your needs and to give you wisdom to walk through that trial. A couple of things about him. Number one, he gives generously. 
verse 5. Now, while God certainly gives generously, while he is generous beyond what we will ever understand, this term generous speaks to the sincerity and undivided intent of God to give us what we need to please him. It's, it's almost as if he's contract, contrasting the generosity, the, the sincerity, the, the, the undivided resolve of God to give us what we need to the one in verse 6 who, who is a doubter. So God is resolved to give us what we need to honor him. Do you think for a moment that when you pray to God to ask God for something you need to honor him and to act accurately and faithfully live out your life for his honor and glory, that he would not give it to you? God has resolved to give us what we need. His intent is sincere. And so when we ask for God for help and we're asking with a sincere desire to honor and glorify him to go through this situation, trial or no trial, and we need wisdom for this, God is going to give it to us. God's gift of wisdom is not limited daily to the first 200 that ask. There's not a cap here. You ever call someone and you're, you're trying to get maybe just Maybe you've moved and you're getting stuff hooked up or you're, you're trying to call and get a bill sorted out with, a, with a whoever. And you call and you have, that, you have that recording. Our call volume is higher than expected right now. You may have to wait. Something like that. We're experiencing high levels of volume. And you're like, great, I'm going to have to sit on the phone here for, for an hour. Friends, God's not like that. You'll, you'll never hear that recording come back to you when you seek God for wisdom. He's not going to say, sorry, we've already given all the wisdom out for the day. He's not going to say, sorry, you're going to have to wait. We've got too many people in line. Friends, God's resources are unlimited. You can trust him. And he doesn't, he doesn't just tend to the more important people in life before you. You, friends, you are designed in the image of God. He cares for you just like he cares for everyone else. And he, he, he delights when you, as one of his children, come to him and seek his help. He delights to give you wisdom. God doesn't segregate or play favorites. He gives generously with sincerity. Number two, he gives graciously. Verse 5 says, without reproach. This means there's no need to feel shame when you come to him. God will not belittle you. Maybe, you, maybe you've experienced that before in other contexts, where maybe at work or at school, maybe, maybe you've had kind of a, a difficult teacher. Teachers don't ever do this. You have a difficult teacher, and, 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 and you go to the teacher, you're asking for help, and they're like, are you dumb or what? Why would you ask such a crazy question? Or maybe at work, you've, you've kind of felt ridiculed because you're, you're, you're asking for help and, and you, you don't know exactly what's going to happen or how to do a particular thing and, and, and someone above you just kind of looks at you and just shames you. Friends, God will never do that. He will never belittle you. He will never shame you for asking him for what you need. If you ask he will give you the wisdom you need to discern how you ought to live in light of his grace. 
Truth be known, though, how often do we ask for wisdom? It's a question I just want to press throughout this sermon, because I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience. I can't speak for you. I'm speaking from my own experience. I just don't think that we ask for wisdom very often. How often do you ask for wisdom? God gives generously. He gives graciously. He's not going to belittle you. When's the last time you've asked God to grant you an understanding mind so that your life may be fruitful? That's wisdom. When's the last time you, you sought God to, to, in a way that, that helped you apply the truth of his word to a particular situation so that he might be glorified and that you might be faithful? He gives graciously. Know who you ought to ask. That's God. He's generous and he's gracious. Number two, know how you ought to ask. Know how you ought to ask. We are called to ask in faith with no doubting. Sometimes we approach God with requests, but such requests are accompanied by doubt. He says, verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. One who approaches God in faith is approaching God with a continued confidence in the nature and character of God. Faith, we're told in other places, Romans 4 verse 21 in the example of Abraham, is this, this unwavering trust in God that takes God at his word. You're fully convinced that God is able to do as he's promised to do and able to give you what he's promised to give you. Fully convinced that God's able to do that. This is what we mean by faith. James is not saying, hey, if your faith is at a certain percent, God is going to be more prone to answer. Whose faith is ever 100% good? Jesus' faith was, other than Jesus. You ever have 100% faith? Again, this is one of the lies of the prosperity gospel. They say, hey, if, you're, if things are going bad, you just don't have enough faith. We never have enough faith. Remember the guy in the, in the, in the gospels, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. My faith is always weak, but I know that even in light of my weak, struggling, feeble faith, that I have a God who is able to do all things. And my, my, little, my little bit of faith, I'm just placing on this sufficient, capable God. This is what, this is how we're to ask. Friends, don't pray as a doubter. I don't think he means here that you should never wonder what God is up to. What he's saying is that we should never doubt the character of God. We're often going to wonder what God is up to. That's not doubt. That's just curiosity, sanctified curiosity, right? Lord, I know you're getting glory out of this somehow, but it's beyond me. But I know you're good. That's faith, friends. That's faith. When we pray with doubt, there is a conflict of loyalty present. James calls this person double-minded and unstable in all his ways. 
I love what Bunyan, John Bunyan wrote in his Pilgrim's Progress. He had a character. One of the characters' names was Mr. Facing Both Ways. Don't be Mr. Facing Both Ways. Be Mr. Facing One Way, and that is trusting in God. And to know how you ought to ask. You ask in faith. Ask in, in, in complete assurance that God is able to do what He has promised to do and give what He has promised to give. Know how you ought to ask. You ask in faith. And then number three, trials invite joy, they demand wisdom, and they require perspective. Verses 9 through 11. It may seem again that James has leaped to another category and begins talking about the rich and the poor. And he does here talk about the rich and poor, but I still think it's in context of what he's already been talking about with the trials. One way that we can think about verses 9 through 11 is what James is presenting here is the application of wisdom. He's saying you need wisdom, or you're going to go through trials, it's for your good. You need wisdom when you have those trials. And now here is wisdom being applied in two different scenarios, the rich and the poor. Specifically in the life of the rich, he says, let me just read verse 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother, it's the poor, boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. See what James is doing here? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. To sum it up, James is highlighting the fact that our spiritual position in Christ transcends any earthly status that we have. Both the poor and the rich go through trials, and those are of various kinds. If you're rich and you lose everything, that's quite a trial. If you're poor and you have nothing, that's another kind of trial in and of itself. And all James is doing here is just reminding that we are all on, lit, on level ground when it comes to Christ, rich and poor alike. Friends, let your spiritual standing be that which identifies you. For the poor, their lowly status in the world is kind of a trial, but with the wisdom of God, they are to boast in their exaltation, their exalted status as a child of God. For the rich, any unexpected disaster or loss in wealth or possessions should not throw them, should not throw them. Rather, they are to boast in their humiliation because their riches are ultimately not their hope. Christ is. The poor man should look beyond his poverty and realize his riches in heaven, while the rich man should not trust in his material possessions, but take comfort with the fact that his true wealth rests in heaven with Christ. When we think about this passage, I'm just reminded that this world is not our home. Your trials are temporary, your poverty is temporary, your riches are temporary, earthly riches. It's all temporary. Our dividers are temporary, we have to replace them. And what James is doing here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is he's teaching us that we need to get to the point of viewing our lives with the proper lenses we need. He's preparing us for the trials. He's, he's, he's 
supporting us in the trial and he's reminding us even after the trial of where our hope and where our confidence ought to be. That we ought to set our hope on the one, the one who's not only in the midst of the trial, but the one who actually sovereignly, mysteriously designed it. So when trials come, count it pure joy. Have a settled confidence that God is good and he is faithful. Seek his wisdom, friends. Don't seek escape only. Seek the wisdom of God. He may actually be teaching you. And keep your perspective eternal, not on the things you have or don't have. As trials will come, Trials will come, but we can trust God because he is good and he desires to do us good. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that we do face trials of various kinds, some small, some great, some short, some long. Some trials hurt more than others. But Father, we know that regardless of what we may face, regardless of where we may be, we have one who loves us and cares for us. So much, Lord, that our trials aren't even wasted. In fact, our trials have sovereign design in them to do us good. So Father, would you give us this perspective that we need today? Would you help us to think rightly? Would you help us when trials do come to, to count them as pure joy? Lord, that we would just have that settled contentment and confidence in you. God, would you help us to realize that we are a people that cannot live without your wisdom? Not, not a single day. Would you help us to be a people who often pursue you? And Lord, would you help us to realize that our our standing is not resting upon what we have or what we don't have, but rather, Lord, on what we've been given in Christ. Father, it may be that there's someone here or maybe several who are here today that don't know Jesus. They, they've not known the forgiveness of sin that comes through the finished work of Christ. Father, I pray that you would search their hearts and that you would stir their hearts, help them to see their need for Christ, Lord, that you would help them to engage in others with conversation, Lord, that they would seek others out so that they could know more of what it means to be a Christian. And Father, for the believers who are here today, Lord, I pray that this word from James, God, would be, would be refreshment to our souls. To realize, Lord, that the things that we face in life are not wasted. They're not just crazy things that we have to endure, but Lord, there is reason and there is design and there is purpose. And Lord, you are working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, even our trials. So help us to trust you and to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.